It was the custom of the convent to give any departing sister the dignity of a clean body, as well as a spotless soul, and to clothe her in a bright new habit, a wedding dress for the bride finally united with the godhead husband. This ritual was performed by Sister Magdalena, aided by a younger nun, but on this occasion their services were not required. Sister Lucrezia, it appeared, had made a special request before she died, asking that her body be left untouched in the habit in which she had served her lord for all these years. It was, to say the least, unusual. There was talk among the sisters as to whether it might qualify as disobedience, but the Reverend Mother had sanctioned it, and it would have gone unquestioned had it not been for the news, also received that morning, of an outbreak of plague in the village nearby. The convent was separated from the hamlet of Loro Chufena by a strenuous horse ride. The first sign had apparently appeared three days before, when a young farmer's boy had been stricken with a fever and an eruption of boils that had spread all over his body. He died two days later, by which time his younger brother and the baker nearby were infected. It was learned that the boy had been at the convent the week before, delivering flour and vegetables. The suggestion was that the devil's illness had come from there, and the sister who had now died was its carrier, and it was a widely held belief that the pestilence would live on in her clothes, only to escape through the earth later and contaminate again. The Reverend Mother regretfully overrode Lucrezia's last wish and ordered that her garments be removed and burned and the corpse disinfected before being consigned immediately to holy ground. Sister Lucrezia's body lay stretched out on the bed. The two sisters worked nervously fast, wearing pruning gloves from the orchard, the only protection the convent could offer against contamination. They unfastened the habit at the shoulders and cut it open down the front, peeling away the material crusted with the sweat of suffering. They were especially careful of the area around the tumour, where the habit, and then the shift underneath, had fused fast to the skin. They ungraciously tugged at the half-soaked mound of cloth and flesh, the size of a small melon and pulpy to the touch. It didn't come easily. In the end, Sister Magdalena gave a hefty yank, and the material ripped off the body, bringing with it what felt like the whole growth itself. The old nun let out a gasp as the mass of fat tissue came away in her gloved hand. Looking back down at the body, her sense of wonder increased. Where the tumour had been, the surface of the skin was healed. No wound, no blood or pus, no discharge at all. Sister Lucrezia's fatal malignancy had left her body unscathed. This was surely a miracle. And had it not been for the unbearable stench in the small cell, they might have fallen to their knees there and then in recognition of God's magnanimity. But the fact was that the smell seemed to grow stronger with the tumour released. Freed from the body, it sat in the sister's hand, a sack of distended growth, oozing black liquid out of one side like rotting offal. Magdalena stifled a low moan. The sack slipped through her fingers and splatted onto the stones beneath, bursting apart on the impact 
and sending a shower of liquid and gore across the floor. Inside the mess they could make out shapes now, black coils and gobbets of blood, intestines, organs. Awful indeed. Though it was many years since the older nun had worked in the kitchen, she had seen enough dissected carcasses to know the difference between human and animal remains. The Reverend Sister Lucrezia had died not, it seemed, from a tumour, but from a self-applied bladder of pig's entrails. The revelation would have been shocking enough without what came next. It was Maria, the younger nun, who spotted it. The silver streak on the corpse's skin curving up over the edge of the shoulder, grown gradually thicker over the collarbone, until it disappeared underneath what remained of the undershirt. This time the younger nun took the initiative, cutting open the shift and tearing it in a single rip until the corpse was revealed, naked on the bed. At first they could make no sense of what was before their eyes. Lucrezia's exposed flesh was white. The body was old, the stomach and breast slackened by age, but with little excess fat, which meant it had retained enough of its figure for the image to have kept its proportions. As the painted line thickened at the collarbone, it gained more shape and substance, rounding itself out from a tail into the body of a snake, silver-green in colour, and so lifelike that by the time it had slid its way over the breast, you might swear you could see the movement of its muscles rippling under the skin. Close to the right nipple, it curled itself around the darkened areola before sliding down the breast and plunging across the stomach. Then, as it dipped toward her groin, the shape flattened out in readiness for the serpent's head. Age had defoliated what would once have been a thicket of pubic hair into a straggle of wiry curls, so that what would have been invisible save to the most insistent seeker was now made plain. At the point where the snake's body became its head, instead of the reptilian skull, was the softer, rounder shape of a man's face, the head thrown back, the eyes closed, as if in rapture, and the tongue, snake-long still, darting out from his mouth downward toward the opening of Sister Lucrezia's sex. The Testament of Sister Lucrezia Looking back now, I see it more as an act of pride than kindness that my father brought the young painter back with him from the north that spring. The chapel in our palazzo had recently been completed, and for some months he had been searching for the right pair of hands to execute the altar frescoes. It wasn't as if Florence didn't have artists enough of her own. The city was filled with the smell of paint and the scratch of ink on the contracts. There were times when you couldn't walk the streets for fear of falling into some pit or mire left by constant building. Anyone and everyone who had the money was eager to celebrate God and the Republic by creating opportunities for art. The churches were the best. God was in the very plaster smeared across the walls, in readiness for the frescoes. Stories of the Gospels made flesh for anyone with eyes to see, and those who looked saw something else as well. Our Lord may have lived and died in Galilee 
but his life was recreated in the city of Florence. I was almost ten years old when Domenico Ghirlandaio completed his frescoes for the Tornabuoni family in the central chapel of Santa Maria Novella. I remember it well, because my mother told me to. You should remember this moment, Alessandra, she said. These paintings will bring great glory to our city. My father's fortune was rising out of the steam of the dying vats in the back streets of Santa Croce then. By the time the painter came to live with us in 1492, I remember the date, because Lorenzo de' Medici died that spring. The Florentine appetite for flamboyant cloth had made us rich. Our newly completed palazzo was in the east of the city, between the great cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore and the church of Sant'Ambrogio. It rose four stories high around two inner courtyards, with its own small walled garden and space for my father's business on the ground floor. The night the painter arrived is sharp as an etching in my memory. It is winter, and the stone balustrades have a coating of frost, as my sister and I collide on the stairs in our night shifts, hanging over the edge to watch the horses arrive in the main courtyard. It's late, and the house has been asleep, but my father's homecoming is reason for celebration. Not simply for his safe return, but because, amid the panniers of samples, there is always special cloth for the family. Plautilla is already beside herself with anticipation, but then she is betrothed and thinking only of her dowry. My brothers, on the other hand, are noticeable by their absence. For all our family's good name and fine cloth, Tommaso and...